Welcome to Movie Oubliette, the film review podcast for movies that most people have mercifully forgotten. I'm Dan. And I'm Conrad. And in each episode, we drag a forsaken film out of the Oubliette. Discuss it and judge it to decide whether it should be set free. <laughs> or whether it should be thrown back and consigned to oblivion forever. <laughs> Well met, travellers, and welcome to Movie Oubliette, the hemisphere-spanning podcast for forgotten fantastical films, with me, Conrad, becoming increasingly unkempt in Cambridge, UK. <laughs> and me, Dan, mistakenly going to the wrong music concert in uh, Melbourne, Australia. <laughs> <laughs> This needs some analysis. Uh, we focus on sci-fi, fantasy and horror because hanging women off a bridge, spearing dogs and running from zombie monks is how we bring spice to our daily outdoor exercise. Mm, yes. <laughs> Hello, Dan. Hello. How are you? <laughs> I'm good. I'm good. So how are you going to the wrong music concert? Well, well, this is uh, this is all my wife's fault. So Hannah, this is this is all on you. So we bought she she bought tickets to a, a music concert. I'm not going to name it just in case we get into trouble. Uh, and and we were all excited to go. And it was on the Friday that's just been. And so um, we were all excited. We arrived. Uh, they got us to scan our QR codes and make sure we had our masks because like, we haven't had concerts for a while. So this is one of the, the sort of few that we've had since COVID. Uh, and we filed in. We showed the ticket at the door. And then we, we went to the, the door of the concert hall and we showed our ticket. It was on my wife's phone, um, bear in mind. And they were like, oh, yes, this is your seat number. And they ushered us to our seat. We sat down. And an artist we've never heard of <laughs> walked on stage and started playing. And we oh. thought... This must be a pre-show. Surely. Yeah. This is like the pre-show. This is a pre-show. Warm-up act. Yeah. Yes, yes. <laughs> but all of the signage was of this <laughs> band that we've never heard of. Uh, and then we thought, hang on, this is not right. And so Hannah How checked- many tracks into it did you figure out? <laughs> <laughs> I think it was two songs in because that's, you know, that's a valid pre-show. Uh, so Hannah yeah. was checking her phone. She checked the ticket and the date on the ticket was for the following week. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, no. Well, doesn't say much for security I that know. they let you into the wrong concert. Yeah, they didn't scan our ticket. I mean, it was on a phone, so I guess maybe they didn't scan it. They just knew, oh, yes, it's, it looks like a valid <laughs> ticket. But I guess because they were so concerned about COVID safety and looking at the seat number uh, that oh, they wow. just didn't bother to read the actual <laughs> title of the ticket the, the artist in question oh my uh, so didn't yeah. somebody show up wanting to sit in your seat no, luckily, like somebody that really had tickets no luckily, oh, wow. no one showed up because it wasn't a sold out show so there were quite a lot of empty seats <laughs> and we were kind of to the side like everyone was kind of clumped in the center we were in the side so we yeah it's just uh <laughs> Uh, fate, I guess, that we managed yeah. to see a free show. 
Oh my. I'm so jealous that you've got live events to go to. I Oddly enough, I was looking at the what's on for the Albert Hall for the rest of the year oh, because yes. I thought I really want to go back to the Albert Hall. And they do have things scheduled for the latter half of this year. You know, hopeful that things will be open up by then. But all of the concerts are all things that say rescheduled from 2020. Oh, wow. And all of the tickets, like if you'd bought tickets, they've rolled over. Oh, so they're all sold out. I mean, right. everything's sold out from two years ago. So. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Yeah. Wow, wow. So have the uh, listeners been talking to us, Conrad? Anything in the mailbag? Yes, they have. And primarily, of course, because it was a patron's choice movie in our last episode, Season of the Witch, Nicolas Cage, as picked by Surge of Cold Crash Pictures. Hello, Surge. Hey, Surge. <laughs> so he was on Tenterhooks listening to that episode. And he said that Season of the Witch is a fascinating failure, somehow less than the sum of its parts, which feels like it's only about to get good before it suddenly wraps up after 95 anticlimactic minutes. Mm. Mm-hmm. At least it doesn't take itself too seriously. He also says, I didn't mean to leave Conrad and Dan in such suspense over their final verdicts. I do not love this film, <laughs> but it fails with flair. And I think you can often learn more about good filmmaking by looking at a film that doesn't quite work than one that does. Mm, so. Valid point. Yeah, I, I love talking mm. about movies that fail. Yes, but we're glad that you picked it for us, Serge, so Mm. thank you for that. And in response to Serge, the Bog Queen said, I'd rather watch a film where the filmmaker's reach exceeds their grasp than something well-made that just retreads familiar ground. And if it happens to involve Nick Cage, well, that never hurts. (laughs) He is ceaselessly entertaining, isn't he? Mm, mm, mm. Yes. But not in Season of the Witch. <laughs> no, no, we didn't get a full Nick Cage. It was yeah. really disappointing. No. Really disappointing. But what won't be disappointing is our movie today, Conrad. No, hopefully not. Let me uh, just amble on over. Oh, seems to be like an airlock this time. Mm. Weird. We're in space today. Mm. Okay, let me just put this space suit on. Oh, gosh, this this is a bit tight. Oh, this is a bit claustrophobic. Oh. Oh, now there's these lights in the helmet and I can't see. They're quite bright. They really are. Okay, I'm opening the hatch. I I really can't see anything. Where's the movie? Oh, uh, uh, a little bit to the left, Conrad. Uh, uh, Okay, I've got it. Coming back. (laughs) Hey, think it over. Let's take this thing off. God. Honestly, stars in front of my eyes. I can't see a bloody thing. <laughs> well, uh, well, can you see the movie? What What do we have today? So we have Outland, a 1981 British science fiction thriller film written and directed by Peter Hyams and starring Sean Connery, Peter Boyle, Francis Sternhagen, James B. Sicking and Kika Markham. Ooh, Sean Connery in space. Yes, in Outland, Sean Connery stars as Bill O'Neill, the new marshal in town at a mining outpost on Io, one of the moons around Jupiter. He soon discovers the workers there have a nasty habit of hallucinating and walking out of airlocks without a spacesuit. With the help of curmudgeonly but courageous space doctor Marion Lazarus, 
Paris, O'Neill discovers a conspiracy to sell performance-enhancing drugs to the poor miners with no regard for their head-exploding side effects. <laughs> the conspiracy goes all the way to the top. The outpost's administrator, Mark Shepard, who hires two assassins from Earth to eliminate the pesky marshal. As the clock ticks down to the arrival of the next shuttle, O'Neill finds himself increasingly isolated, with none of the townsfolk offering to help him. He's thrown into a nail-biting cat-and-mouse game with the professional killers inside the outpost and in the harsh environment of Io outside. Will he survive? Find out! <laughs> You've got to do a bad Sean Connery impression. Oh, uh, well, there's going to be more to come, I believe. <laughs> <laughs> I think there will be from our special guest who's very good at it. So. Yes. He's the good one. I'm the he bad is. one. <laughs> Conrad, <laughs> you're too. not so bad. <laughs> but let's listen to the master after the break. Yes. Our special guest today is the co-founder and host of Retro Blasting, the most informative and entertaining video channel to focus on 80s vintage toys and classic cartoons. He's respected and loved for his insight, encyclopedic knowledge, good humour and, above all, integrity. It's Michael French. Hello, hey. sir. Hello. Hey. How are you guys doing? It is so nice to be on this podcast, finally. I mean, because <laughs> I am sort of in the middle of the seesaw that is the English-speaking world now. Now. So you're in Britain and, and you're in Australia and here I am in the United States. It just feels synergistic or balanced in some way at this point. I'm, I'm excited. It does. And you've been to both places too. I have. Which is pretty amazing. Yeah. And I've been to Cambridge specifically and I've been to Melbourne specifically. So mm. I feel like I have a kind of a working knowledge of where you guys live and are. And so that really helps speed up the process of just getting right on into the podcast itself. You know, there's no awkwardness. There's no like, well, I don't know if Michael's going to understand me and Michael's not thinking that they're not going to understand him. Yeah. It's great. Yeah. I mean, listeners out there, you should check out the video where Michael does go to Melbourne to prove the world wrong that Brent does in fact <laughs> exist as a human being. That's yes. right. He, he, he breathes oxygen and expels carbon dioxide. He has a great New Zealand accent and he collects Star Wars toys. He's very real. <laughs> yeah. I mean, what's uh, amazing as well, I am actually a Kiwi. Nice. Living in Melbourne. So see? Exactly like See, Brent. now all you need is a sail barge. That's all I you know. need. I yeah. know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You just need to buy something off Hasbro Labs that's ridiculously outsized. Right. Right. So that Michael can bring it to you. <laughs> right. There we go. Yeah, there we go. While hordes of people claim that it's all a fraud. Oh, I know. For some reason. He's faked another Australian person. <laughs> He's actually another New Zealand person living in Australia. This is too specific and repetitive. It must be a hoax. <laughs> the internet is an amazing place sometimes. It is it? wild. It is the wild, wild west with... <laughs> a lot more whiskey and a lot less cattle. Uh -huh. yeah. Or there's more cattle, depending on how you define cattle. Oh, yeah. 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 <laughs> well, speaking of the Wild West, the film that we are here to talk about today has been described as a Western in space. It is Outland, the 1981 British science fiction thriller film directed by Peter Hyams and starring none other than Sean Connery, 
I was wondering if, uh, Michael, you'd like to kick us off by talking about your first experience of seeing this film and uh, why you picked it for us today. I saw this film for the first time in film school uh, at Syracuse University. Uh, I was a film major there. And uh, Peter Hyams is on some level a Syracuse University alum. And so there was this running joke every time a Peter Hyams movie would be mentioned Somebody in the film program would say, this is during the four years we were there, somebody would go, Peter Hyams, SU alum. (laughs) And uh, so it became this kind of in-joke. So I saw it there for the first time because some friends of mine started in about our sophomore year to say, you know what, rather than just being a run-on joke, we should actually watch a lot of these movies and get familiar so that the in-joke actually has merit. Mm. And so we started watching 2010 we started watching Outland, a number of his films, uh, some of which have been pushed back into my memory oubliette since then. Mm-hmm. But Outland actually stood out, namely because of Sean Connery's presence and the fact that it is what Melinda and I like to call real science fiction. Oh. I don't want to sound snotty about that, but it is in the the milieu, I guess as you would call it, of Star Trek The Motion Picture, Silent Running, Logan's Run, in its delightfully ponderous scripting of the situation. It's not about explosions, you know, although it does have some in there, but it's it's more of a throwback science fiction film without being a throwback. It's actually of that time. Mm. So that's why it sticks in my memory. Yeah. So. Dan, had you seen this one before? Or had it escaped your attention? No, I, I'd never seen this, never heard of this film. I grew up in the 90s, so... I watched all of Sean Connery's greatest hits of the 90s, uh, Entrapment, you know, (laughs) The Avengers, not the good Avengers, the other (laughs) Avengers, The Rock, that sort of stuff. So, yeah, I've never been a big fan of Sean Connery. He's always just been Sean Connery with that classic, unmistakable accent. Mm. So, yeah, I never watched this. How about you, Conrad? Yeah, so I remember this from my youth in the 80s. I think I'm about the same age as Michael. This kind of stuff was catnip to me. Anything that that looked sort of like Alien or Star Wars that had a lived-in universe in which people got killed or explosively decompressed was right up my alley. (laughs) But this one, I've always been kind of ambivalent about it. It never stuck in my memory very much. And I think it's because for a kid... It lacks the alien monster. It lacks the fireworks that you would expect. There were no lasers. They're running around with shotguns. And it's quite a serious film. It's much more about a moral dilemma and a man who's put in an impossible position. And there are long stretches of the film where there's no dialogue and it's just Sean Connery investigating things with a torch. So it was kind of in that ponderous category that didn't sort of light my imagination on fire in quite the same way as Star Trek The Motion Picture did, which (laughs) remains my favourite Star Trek movie to this day, bizarrely. (laughs) It was during that period where they had the technology. It was like the perfect balance of we finally have the technology at our fingertips to fully realize a science fiction setting. And we can now basically take books like Asimov that are hard sci-fi and Mm. start telling the stories, but they told them without a lot of artistic license. It was like, these stories are brilliant. Let's tell them this way. Kubrick has shown us the way. Let's do this, you know? And 
Star Wars coming in in 77 mixed in that mythology thing, but they were two distinct types of sci-fi at the time. It was There was space fantasy with like the imitators, like Battle Beyond the Stars and everything like that going on. And then there was the Star Trek followers, the motion picture style. So you had Logan's Run and Silent Running and you had Outland and you had these, Alien, for example. Yeah, Alien had a lot of excitement and tension, but even Melinda and I, when we talk about it, we're like, Aliens is almost space fantasy. Mm. Alien is science fiction. Mm. We've established the science fiction in this movie. So now Aliens gets to go off and have fun being the space fantasy. It's a different flavor, but for some reason in our household, even though officially my favorite Star Trek is the Wrath of Khan, okay. I do like the motion picture a lot, and it's Melinda's favorite. She will say up and down that motion picture is her favorite Star Trek film, so yeah, Outland falls right into that category of if you're just wanting a movie that makes you think but doesn't rip your heart out of your chest, not emotionally, but just, <laughs> you know, it's it's not doing that kinetic thing of explosions and now Keanu Reeves is running from something else. And, oh, what's the next hair-raising set piece, you know? Mm. It's just more of a, this is going to build, it's going to boil, the water's beginning to percolate, you know, get ready because they're coming and they're coming for him. I love it. And of course, it's ties to Gary Cooper's High Noon. Hmm. Movies about people who refuse to give up or back down, even when they're outnumbered, have always resonated with me. Hmm. I don't know what it is. So even though I wouldn't put this in the top five of movies that do that, it has that. That's the plot. And so I'm just kind of invested in that kind of story. Yeah. So is this officially a remake of High Noon? Because it is exactly the same plot. It's very similar. And I think it was always mentioned in the same breath as High Noon, which I think was 1952. Is that right? That sounds correct. Yeah. Yeah. So Gary Cooper film, which was at the time regarded as an anti-McCarthyism film. And therefore, <laughs> when it was offered to John Wayne, he flatly turned it down because he thought McCarthyism was great. <laughs> Which is really disappointing. So I don't know what you would class Outland as, if politically you could say that it's a response to Reaganism. When you the opening of the film is a pair of guys bitching about their contracts whilst doing something that requires sparks and blue strobe lights to flash, it's Parker and Brett from Alien. So it's the blue-collar workers against the massive unseen company that may not have their best interests at heart. But the interesting thing about this film is I always thought it was the company was in on drugging the workers and I don't think it is directly involved. I think it's made fairly clear that the company doesn't know and it's a separate criminal element or maybe the company is just turning a blind eye and it is well aware but it's not quite the conspiracy Watergate era thriller that Hyam's previous movie Capricorn One was. Mm. Yeah, it seems to be that it's a guy who's within the company who runs that one station whose ambitions have gotten bigger than his grasp. And he, yeah. he wants to push the workers and get them as productive as possible, regardless of the threat to their lives. And that is the one element that makes it markedly different from High Noon. High Noon is a marshal or sorry, town sheriff who is waiting for the guys he famously put in jail to come back on the noon train. They finally serve their time, and the first thing they're going to do is come back for him. Yeah. And, of course, the townspeople don't want to help him, even though he cleaned up their town 
several years prior. Mm, this is a twist on that, which almost you could argue, you know, we were talking about, is it a comment on Reaganism? Is it a comment on this? It could just very well be a comment on the recreational drug scene of the 80s and corporate culture That's because true. they add this company element into it and they add this thing about they don't value their employees, they're killing them for the sake of profit, and they're now hiring people to stop this principled sheriff from stopping them from doing so. And you're right, the company itself at large probably doesn't know, and if they have suspicions about this one manager, they're not doing anything about it. They're just letting it ride. Yeah. Yeah. In terms of westerns in space, there are a lot of sort of homages to westerns. Even the doors have that saloon quality. They kind of flip <laughs> open like a saloon door. Yeah. And the bar is the epicenter of the town where everyone congregates. And there are prostitutes for your choosing, if need be. Mm-hmm. You're trapped up there. Oh, yeah, of course. <laughs> I mean, before the internet, I mean, <laughs> come on. <laughs> what else are they going to do? Right. I feel really bad for the dancers that are trapped in the uh, cones of blue laser light. Oh, because yes. Because they always yes. seem to be doing the same routine and it always seems to involve the woman being wrapped around the guy. I really worry about his back you know you can only do that job for about a year before you need orthopedic surgery i should think oh well how long does it take to download the latest singles from the top 40 all the way across the galaxy you know i don't know what their bandwidth speed is and maybe they smuggle in some new cds but you're basically working with like you know 10 songs maybe over and over at the bar so yeah just grinding away (laughs) Sorry, Dan, you were saying. Uh, Conrad, you did also mention the fact that they don't use laser guns. It's all just Mm. shotguns. It felt like one of those classic cop movies from the 80s and 90s where there's the lone wolf that investigates the thing that no one else seems to care about. Yeah, but he doesn't have a black sidekick who's two weeks away from retirement. No. (laughs) This is thin, Riggs. This is very thin. Yeah, no, uh, you you mentioned the, the, the shotguns as well. I am conflicted about that within the film, not because they're not lasers. I'm totally cool with them not being lasers. It has more to do with the fact that a shotgun at long range can be very non-destructive, relatively speaking. Oh, yeah. But a shotgun at close range could go through the bulkhead walls of this station that's in space. (laughs) And I'm like, I don't know. Shouldn't this be like a taser law enforcement community or something? Like, because Mm. one mistake, you know, like Total Recall style, one mistake and it depressurizes and everyone's going out. Yeah. So Well, quite famously, one of the best hitmen in the galaxy shows up and promptly blows a hole in the greenhouse and kills himself. Yeah. Which is rather silly. Very ill advised. True. People in glass houses and all that kind of thing. Yeah, it's a bit disappointing for send me your best guys. But I mean, I suppose it is a criminal organization. Maybe their best guys just aren't all that great. But... Yeah. I did like it how it was kind of more realistic. You know, in movies like this, send me your best guys and they send a thousand men. At least, you know, they send two. Yeah, Mm. it's not overblown. They're not sending in, like, 50 dudes just come off of a cargo container, which actually (laughs) shocked me upon rewatch. I thought, oh, we get so conditioned with these movies now to expect Mm. it's going to get bigger before it's over. Because High Noon has more than three guys. I mean, the three guys that show up into town bring other dudes with them. I mean, it's several guys. I was like, oh, 
there aren't very many assassins coming after Sean Connery. Yeah. Okay. I guess, you know, you can't fit that many people on a space shuttle. Yeah. Although it does look like a rather large space shuttle, or like a brick with feet, really. <laughs> yeah, I heard it was kind of based on the Staten Island theory. It's all very functional, the production design, which is another thing I like. I think it's many of the same technicians and designers that worked on things like Alien. It is very much a British-produced movie. It's this same bunch of guys that, because of tax breaks and the weakness of the pound, ended up working on a lot of the blockbusters in the 80s. I love how claustrophobic and functional all of it is, down to the mess hall that has the visible ceiling that makes you feel really compressed, even more so than in Hunt for Red October, another Sean Connery movie. Also, those sort of living areas that they have that look like something that Trump would put Mexican children in. It's, it's kind of <laughs> cross between a Japanese capsule hotel and a kennel. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's true. And it does have a very silent running look, not deliberately, but it was clearly because the 70s through the early 80s had a very specific vision of the future Mm. and what spaceships would look and feel like in a realistic environment, obviously barring fake gravity. Other than that, the way that the bulkheads look, the way the sleeping compartments look, the way everything's very compressed. And the Nostromo in Alien is not far off from that, minus the what I call the Wonder Woman computer room with all the (laughs) twinkle lights. But other than that room, you know, the Nostromo has a lot of those design tropes as well. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, a lot of the refinery and that sort of stuff was based on like oil rigs. Mm -hmm. So Peter Himes has said, I thought of the Dodge cities of the past and the oil rigs of the present. We decided the place would look like an oil rig, extraordinarily functional with the machinery very much in evidence. Yeah. Yeah. It's not that slick sci-fi look it looks just like a place that someone would work yeah an oil rig is no different in space than it is in nebraska yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. The model work is great, though. I noted that as well. When the models came by the first time, I was like, oh, wow, I'm not even seeing any matte lines. They've really got this down. It was impressive. Yeah, it's using a different technique, isn't it? It's using something called intravision, which I've, as much as I've tried to read up about it, my brain can't quite wrap myself around how exactly it works. But it's something to do with, instead of elements with blue screen being photochemically combined it's all shot in camera and it's using a beam splitter to combine a projected image that's going onto a scotch light screen and actors standing in front of it and i guess they're using black objects to sort of mat out portions of the foreground action so that actors can walk behind things. Yeah, when I was reading up about introversion, yes, it was difficult trying to sort of... what. It's a bit of a maths equation, isn't it? I did read one description saying it was like being sandwiched between a background image and a foreground image so you yeah like you said you could sort of you know interact with the foreground and background yeah overall it's really impressive when they get the color timing right and when the model is detailed enough and the focal length is long enough to keep it looking the right scale it's pretty impressive work actually for 1981 it's amazing how these things go in waves technologically you know whether you're talking about betamax and vhs uh everybody was racing to find the perfect compositing solution in the late 70s into the early 80s and you know you had zoptics on the superman films with the rear projection that was kind of not rear projection and it was off a mirror as well and Christopher Reeve was in front of it. Then you have this process, and then you have the Lucasfilm, you know, computer-controlled camera process for the original Star Wars. Mm -hmm. And all of them kind of 
ended up competing until some of them fell away and then blue screen compositing uh, with motion controlled cameras became the norm mm. and then immediately were replaced by digital compositing by the early 90s. Yeah. I find that kind of stuff fascinating because there's all these leftover technologies that got tried. It's like when everyone was trying to invent the airplane. Mm. Watch that footage, you know, all these wacky <laughs> ideas, you know. Yeah. yeah. But those shots are impressive. I mean, I remember watching the film and thinking, well, they constructed some enormous sets for this movie. And then I thought about it again and was listening to the commentary and they're talking about, oh, this is Intravision. I thought, gosh, this is actually pretty good. Mm. Some of them it doesn't work, but there's some pretty outrageous attempts. Like the opening shot in the movie is guys descending in an elevator, which is previously shot footage inserted into a model. Oh, wow. And that's Intravisioned over to a live model that's distanced from the set. And then you pan down to... Cliff Clavin from Cheers wow. going crazy thinking there are spiders in his spacesuit, and that's all in one shot which is pretty amazing wow. I'm getting exhausted thinking about the prep it took to figure out how to do that <laughs> yeah exactly. I mean in the analog era you know yeah. with no computers to assist mm. yeah that's nuts and Intravision survived surprisingly long I mean I remember it being used on Army of Darkness when there was a scene with lots and lots of uh, ashes Bruce Campbell's running around mm -hmm. and famously The Fugitive Harrison Ford running away from a train I think was one of the last Intravision shots that was completed. Oh wow. But yeah. see that's the shame of it is because it's a very effective technology that really provides good results if you know how to prep it properly Yeah. and you know these things just get lost to time. Yeah. I did read a funny story about how the two modelers, Bill Pierce and Martin Bauer they only had like 12 weeks to do all the models and the models were pretty substantial. I think the refinery was like six feet tall and there were two mishaps. So they did a lot of the detail with knife work mm. um, and it was painted this light gray. And then Peter Himes came back to them and said he couldn't get the lighting right or the depth of field. So he requested to paint them white, but they used this new car paint that was a lot thicker <laughs> than the paint they were using. So when they sprayed it, all the detail was immediately gone, completely covered up. Yeah. Just weeks of work. <laughs> it's the sort of thing that must make craftsmen just sob uncontrollably. Oh, just crying every night, yes. And the other mishap I did here, when they were making the glass house, I think the crew were moving it and they dropped it. Oh. <laughs> yeah, just smashed. Ah, oh, see, someone's getting a talking to at that point. <laughs> <laughs> Talking about production, uh, the costumes, pretty good. Yeah. I can see where Star Trek Enterprise got its uh, idea for outfits. <laughs> yeah, They are functional. I don't have any problem with them because they're not jumping out at me like costumes in Buck Rogers in the 25th century do now. Yeah. Now you look at that show, which was 1979, and you think, oh, well, some of the background characters' costumes aren't as well thought out. They're kind of thrown together. Everything in Outland... It doesn't wow, yeah. but it doesn't make me recoil. Yeah. Mm. I mean, the costume designer, uh, John Mollo, he did Star Wars mm -hmm. and Empire and Alien and Event Horizon. Wow. So yeah. he's uh, pretty much monopolizing the, the whole sci-fi genre in terms of costumes. Yeah, it just breaks out the boiler suits every time. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he does really like the one-color jumpsuit look. Can you see his conversation with, like, a newbie in the, in the costume design world in Hollywood? He's like, okay, look. 
let me give you the secret to being a great costume designer <laughs> with a lifetime career. Just get into sci-fi and just keep a closet of jumpsuits and just put different <laughs> trim on them. He's like, you think I'm crazy, but I'm telling you, I have been kicking back for 45 years on this and there is no slow up of work. Mm. It's great. Mm -hmm. I did like the um, astronaut helmets though, like with the sort of ring of, it almost looks like cabaret lights. Mm -hmm. They look great. I remember thinking, are those shining back in their faces, the actors, meaning it would look good on camera, but I wondered at the time what the actors had to put up with mm. to navigate the set and their scene. Like, how is that poor guy going to hit a mark if, like, he literally can't see because... That's just they, blinding light. <laughs> yeah, they've blown out the plexi right in front of him, and he's just like, all I see are plexiglass scratches and yellow. Like, what do I do? You know? Yeah, no wonder they all went crazy and went for uh, explosive decompression. Right. <laughs> so, Sean Connery... He did not have the greatest track record in sci-fi, let's be honest. I've never seen Zardoz. I haven't either. I think its reputation precedes it. The nappy, right? Yes. Yeah, Sean Connery and a nappy. <laughs> and I think it's largely indecipherable. Have you seen it, Michael? I have. Oh, wow. I saw it once. Mm. Once is arguably more than enough. But I will say that <laughs> there is a morbid curiosity to one day revisit it because I was about 20 years younger than I am now hmm. when I saw it. And I would really like to revisit that movie as a 40 plus year old and see if I can glean any more from it. I doubt it, but clearly somebody put thought into it. Mm. It could be masochism. I, I have to ask, are any of you big Sean Connery fans? I haven't really seen enough of his movies. I think I've only seen two of the James Bond wow. Sean Connery movies. Is he good in this? Is this classic Sean Connery? I am a fan of Sean Connery. I'm aware that he probably is the archetypal star. He plays Sean Connery pretty much in everything he's in, regardless of what nationality he is meant to be. <laughs> sure. It is what it is. But I came to appreciate re-watching this as an adult, what a fine performer Sean Connery was. There's a really good video essay by Nerdwriter where he analyzes the performance of Anthony Hopkins in one scene of the TV series Westworld and shows you how just with body language, pauses, what he does with his eyes, stresses on words, he shows you what a character is thinking and feeling at a particular moment. Mm -hmm. And I can see that in Sean in simple scenes, like the one where he meets Peter Boyle's evil corporate guy, and he's trying to tell him, we do things a certain way here, and if you fall into line, we're going to get on fine. And you can tell just from Sean's body language that A, he's got the measure of this guy, B, he doesn't like what he's hearing, and, and C, he's not going to go along with it, because he meets him eye to eye at the end of that scene, when Peter Boyle says, let's talk about this some more in my office, which clearly has a threat underlying it. And he meets him eye to eye and Sean says, yes, let's do that, which clearly demonstrates he's not the kind of guy who's going to take this lying down. So he's he's a really great performer. It's not the you know most complicated character that's ever existed on cinema. There isn't much there, yeah. but I think he's really good in it. I thought that as well. There wasn't a lot and it was all very, yeah, more sort of reactions rather than lines. Mm. I did think this role was very reminiscent of like a Harrison Ford role. Yeah. But I guess he would just do a lot more smirking. <laughs> well, it's a, all the actors in this film are clearly directed to give sort of a naturalized performance. You know, even mm. Peter Boyle, who's known for his comedy, uh, is mm. very dialed back in this movie. Not that he can't do drama, but these are believable people 
in a scenario that we can't quite grasp because we're not there as a species yet, but they're still acting like people that we can relate to. Connery, I wouldn't call myself like a Connery diehard fan with like posters and everything on the walls, but I've seen all of his Bond films. I've seen most of his work. I saw all of his later work, including League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, which made him leave the film industry forever. Yeah. In other words, I've seen all of his roles during his drought period between Bond and his comeback, which arguably would be The Untouchables in 1987, which is his big comeback. Right. What I was struck by when I watched this film the second time, it shows such a lost opportunity, specifically regarding Sean Connery, mm -hmm. because... He does a great job in this movie, and he looks great. Like, he still looks like a viable action hero that's in his middle age. Mm. Like Harrison Ford kind of felt like in Patriot Games and Clear and Present Danger and The Fugitive. Mm -hmm. And I kept thinking to myself, it's a shame that Hollywood typecast him all through the 70s and wouldn't give him anything to do mm. because he had so much to give. Because by the time he gets to Untouchables and even Highlander a year or two before, he's playing the wizened older man at that point. He's playing mm, sure. the mentor to the action hero. Yeah, and of course, eight years later, he ended up playing Harrison Ford's father. Yeah, yeah he, James <laughs> Bond became Indiana Jones's father. It's perfect. Yeah, and after that, you know, they kind of gave him roles in The Rock and Entrapment, where he was a really charismatic star. It was his second coming, I guess you'd call it, the, 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 mm. you know, the re-rising of the Connery son. But that's not the same as the age he was at when he was in Outland. There was so much he could have done then. He missed could, opportunity. yeah. I, he does great in Outland. That's not the missed opportunity. It's everything that didn't come before. That's all I'm saying. Right. You are absolutely right. Yeah. yeah. Well, let's talk about the real star of the movie, Francis Sternhagen oh, yes. uh, as Dr. Oh, yes. Lazarus, playing a role originally written for a man. Oh. I love Francis Sternhagen in this role. She has this biting, world-weary cynicism, but you can tell that there still is an idealist heart beating underneath all of that cynicism. <laughs> and I've sort of looked out for her ever since and like her in things like Misery and Raising Cain and most recently in The Mist where Frank Darabont specifically wanted her to oh, uh, yeah, roast yeah. some spiders. <laughs> I love the behind-the-scenes stuff where he's shouting across the room, kick ass, Franny, kick ass. <laughs> I'm not that aware of her as an actress, so I, I looked her up and she went on to a lot of TV, so she was in Cheers. I think, Conrad, you mentioned one of the other actors was in Cheers. Yeah, so Cliff Clavin, who dies in the opening scene, Francis Sternhagen was his mother for quite oh, some right, time right, on right. Yeah. yeah. And she also went on to be in Sex and the City and ER as well. I yeah. believe she also plays uh, Kira Sedgwick's mother in The Closer oh, uh, later on right. in the odds. Mm -hmm. I love her. She kind of puts him in his place as well yeah. because he's stomping around like he owns a place and she has that wish and bite for sure. She does. I love what she says about uh, somebody asked her if she had problems playing a role that was written for a man originally and she said that Sean Connery is undoubtedly the most masculine presence in any room, <laughs> that she did not have any difficulty responding to him in a feminine way. 
even though the lines were not written that way. And in fact, that final moment between them when she says goodbye to him and she says, I did good, didn't I? She gets almost girlish at that moment as though she's looking for a father's approval. There's never anything sexual between them, which is another thing that I really appreciate. That's true. Like normally in an 80s movie like that, instant romance, but no. Especially with the wife having left him, not left him, left him, but she's like, I can't live here anymore. She didn't say she wanted to leave him literally but the wife did say i'm taking our son somewhere where he can be happy you're welcome Mm. to come with us i want you to come with us and so there was that moment where i thought oh is is he gonna be upset about his wife leaving quote unquote to the point that he's gonna strike up a romance with the doctor uh but thankfully that didn't happen and kept it fresh Mm. and, Mm. and less predictable the other thing i loved about her character was the fact that she kept undercutting all of his expectations every time on every front it was like you know one minute it's like well i'm not going to get that paperwork done for you in time you know or whatever and the next minute she's like i'm not even really a doctor okay and you're just sitting there going wow like her honesty about herself is just you know immense Mm. it was really a nice foil to connery's character having such concrete conviction you know you've got this other person that's just keeping him balanced, you know? It was like, you, you, you do realize that life here doesn't work that way, right? Like, <laughs> this is not gonna go the way you think. Now it's time for Random Trivia. So the piece of trivia I have today is actually about Sean Connery. So I didn't know this. I read this on my DVD special features, which is just text. <laughs> it's not even, oh, no. it's not even video. <laughs> Uh, it did say that Sean Connery, before getting into movies, he's worked in a, a numerous, numerous jobs. Uh, a milkman, a truck driver, <laughs> a cement mixer, and a coffin polisher. Oh. So I can just imagine like Sean Connery just polishing this coffin going, oh yes, very shiny. <laughs> <laughs> and that's our trivia. Speaking of characters, what did you think of the other characters? Because they weren't really any. Everyone else was kind of like Goon 1, Goon 2. Yeah, they were the foot soldiers of a Ninja Turtles film. (laughs) They were there to keep the plot moving forward and keep the tension up. But they did that fairly well. I, I was When we were talking about Francis earlier, I was immediately drawn back to the scene where she's strategically trying to close different airlock doors to yes. guide them, lead them, trick them into going into different areas to set them up for Sean Connery's next trap. Mm. And I remember feeling on that recent rewatch, I remember actually feeling real tension in that moment because the movie had established the idea that nobody in this film was invincible. Yeah, Mm. there was that one scene where she's creeping around and I thought, oh my God, she's going to get shot. Mm -hmm. But there's that real weird jump scare where she like walks into a uniform. Yeah. uh, Hanging (laughs) up on her. I know. It's really strange. I can never take those jump scares seriously ever since Top Secret where that guy gets (laughs) shocked by a pair of German boots. (laughs) That's what I was thinking of. Oh my God, I was thinking the same thing. Oh, yeah. But the movie does take a really dark turn at one. Point. I mean, it's been sort of procedural. There's been a sense of threat, but then all of a sudden, in quick succession, the guy that uh, O'Neill apprehends is killed in a, a sort of zero gravity prison, which is pretty shocking. Then you have James Sicking's character, Sergeant Montone, who seems to be a friend of O'Neill's, but then he finds out that he's on the take. He dies in quite a shocking way.
opening scene, he discovers yeah. his body garroted. And then Sean himself is attacked by uh, somebody with a garrot, which is the one sort of James Bond moment because he seems to have a garrot-proof neck brace that he mm. then reveals and takes off. I'd keep the neck brace on. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> That was what was interesting to me about it was that I was ready for his deputies to not help him. Yeah. But I wasn't necessarily ready for one of them to outright betray him because I knew they were already hiring killers. Yeah. yeah. I kind of predicted it. I did want more development with that character, with um, mm-hmm. Officer Ballard. Mm-hmm. Clark Peters plays him. Mm-hmm. Like, I didn't really notice him until the end. Mm-hmm. But... Yeah, it was a good twist. It is a good twist, and it's one that was engineered after a test screening. Alan Ladd Jr., the head of the Ladd Company, which produced the film, he mentioned in an interview that in the original version of the film, you saw Ballard set out to kill O'Neill before O'Neill had killed the assassins, and it meant that the test audience didn't cheer when the second assassin was killed and wasn't shocked when Ballard opened fire on O'Neill. So they switched it around in the edit so that you didn't know, and then... Then when the second assassin dies, everyone says, yay, it's over. And then Ballard opens fire on O'Neill and everyone's shocked, thinking, who's this? So good little bit of engineering after a test screening then. Yeah, that's a good example of how a test screening can actually help you. Mm. Test screenings are done right and in moderation. Yes. They can help you. (laughs) I mean, one thing I was, because I'm always trying to predict the unpredictable, I did think, is Frances's character going to double-cross him? But she doesn't. Which, I mean, which was good. Yeah. But it would have been a shock if she did. Yeah, I'm not sure I would have bought that really. Yeah. Exactly. You'd have to watch Sean Connery murder a middle-aged lady. (laughs) I don't know how the test audiences would have done with that. Well, I I was with the movie until the end where Sean Connery just killed that poor woman. And I just, I don't think he'd do that. I just don't think he'd do that. Well, I don't know. He didn't really have a sterling record as James Bond, did he, in terms of his relationship with women? No, but middle America, the moviegoers of the 70s, they thought Sean Connery was the man. Yeah. One thing that surprised me for a big Hollywood star is just how isolated and vulnerable and desperate he appears towards the second act. Yeah. Yeah, I love his dejectedness as well when he asks his security team, like, help me. And they're like, oh, you should be protecting us. And then they say, oh, where's your people? And he just says, my people are shit. (laughs) He just walks (laughs) off. (laughs) I love the scene. I don't remember if it's right after that or right before it where he just walks into the bar. Mm. And he just sits down and everybody's watching him, like, waiting for something to happen. If I recall, he doesn't even have a line. He just sits down and he's just focused on his drink and watching the clock. And you can see the reality sinking in for everybody else. Like, we're not helping this guy. Mm. And he is all alone. And in their minds, they're probably thinking, we're looking at a dead man right now. Like, he's not going to make it out of this. It was. I really enjoyed that scene. It reminded me a lot. I'm sure it was deliberately referencing... The scene in High Noon when it's like five minutes or ten minutes or whatever it is to noon and Gary Cooper's made all the preparations he can possibly make on his own. No one's going to help him and he just sits down in the sheriff's office at his desk and he just waits. Mm -hmm. You know, and it's just like, (gasps) you know, what's going to happen? Which is why I was then shocked that only two dudes got off the shuttle. But whatever. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the clock was great. It was genius for tension building because you were Mm -hmm. just anticipating the moment that was about to arrive. Yeah. So one aspect I'd like to talk about in terms of tension building is the work of one Jerry Goldsmith. Oh, yes. Personally, I find it a little bit 
reminiscent of Alien. I mean, it's only mm-hmm. two years after Alien and it doesn't feel as inspired. And whereas Alien achieves all of its effects through analogue means with tape delays and really, really strange exotic instruments and percussion, this relies on Jerry's early 80s synthesizer effects. And oh, okay. some of them are great and some of them, I think, date the movie a little bit. But you can't deny he's a great technician when it comes to action scenes. I would actually say this is my favourite Jerry Goldsmith score. Really? Wow. I haven't watched Alien in a long time, so obviously maybe I need to do a refresher. But yeah, I love this score. I thought it really carried the movie, especially in, in the scenes that weren't so visually interesting. Like that chase scene, it was really hard to kind of tell what was going on because it was so dark and it was so claustrophobic. But with that score sort of pumping it along, it was really good. And I did really appreciate the lack of score in scenes. Mm. When the two assassins are trying to stalk Sean Connery, there's no score in that. So it's really well cued. Mm. And I don't know, I'm a sucker for cheesy synth. The cheesier, the better. (laughs) Okay, and you, Michael? For me, movie scores go one of two ways. They're either stellar and I run out and I buy them on CD, or... They're so awful that I still think about them sometimes when I close my eyes at night and, you know, they get stuck in my head and I just resent them. This one falls into that gray area where it wasn't something that I stood up and said, where's the score been all my life? But it also wasn't something where I'm going to, you know, resent ever hearing those notes, you know, from those instruments in that combination. Can Mm. you give an example of a score that you resent? Yes, I can. (laughs) Forbidden Planet. Oh, okay. Uh, I really do not like Forbidden Planet score. I know it was the 50s. I know they thought they were doing something cool. It is not cool. I do not like it. It's a big mistake. Anybody that owns that score on CD for any reason, I have to ask them what's going on in your brain pan. Right. Like, what, why do you need that? I think the one that incensed us the most so far on the movie Oublia oh, journey yes. that we've been on is Lady Hawk. Is oh, that what you're thinking, Dan? Yeah. Great example. That's definitely, oh, yeah. Yes. It's like GoldenEye. It's like, if I would pay somebody to rescore these movies. You are reminding me of every score I hate. Okay, so... (laughs) so, No, 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 that's great, because I needed to answer the question. Lady Hawk, GoldenEye, Forbidden Planet. GoldenEye is such a disappointment. What a Eric Serra should be punched for that one. Like, what are you doing? Like, you're doing Bond, and you literally just, like, did the entire score on, like, a speaking spell. Like, it was horrible. Wow. Coming to you live from the Movie Oubliette Theatre, it's the prestigious Movie Awards. It's the Mobley Awards, where we don't need to inject polydichloric euthanol to stay entertained. It's where we present our favourite zero-gravity parts of the film in a number of head-exploding categories. Best quote. Well, let's face it, Francis Sternhagen has Agreed. all the best lines Agreed. in this movie. 100%. <laughs> 
my favourite of hers is, is short and sweet, which is when uh, Sean Connery challenges her on something. She says, I'm unpleasant. I'm not stupid. Uh, that's actually what I wrote down as well. Yeah. Um, all the exchanges between her and, and Sean Connery, just brilliant. I do like the bit where she's analysing the blood and he's like, you know, asking her questions. And then she just says, I spend my days dispensing tranquilizers to the workers and certifying that the company prostitutes don't have syphilis. I don't know how to analyze a new molecule. It's great. <laughs> well, my favorite quote from this movie uh, has to be at the beginning of this discussion, I talked about how what resonates with me about Outland and certain movies like it is when there's a guy who stands for his principles, even though he's outnumbered and knows that no one's going to help him. I was reminded of a quote here that has to be my favorite quote, and it's from Sean Connery himself. It's when he's talking to Montone, and Montone, he asks Montone, you know, he says, you know, how deep are you in? And he says, not too deep. I'm paid to look the other way. And then Sean Connery says, I get it. You don't do anything bad. You just don't do anything good, right? <laughs> Which, to me, that's the kind of quote that resonates with me. A, you know, a hero who recognizes that I'm dealing with spineless people and I'm going to be on my own. Mm. You know? Best hair or costume? It's pretty difficult, best hair or costume, because everybody is wearing the same boiler yep, suits. Yep. Just a lot of gray. Except for the sex workers <laughs> who've just got a thong on. So yeah, pull them. So yeah, I didn't, I didn't really pick out anything to be honest. I would just say the space helmet, the lights, and it was something different. Slight, <laughs> the blinding very, space. Yeah, helmet. the blinding lights. It's <laughs> <laughs> slightly different to what you would normally see. And there's that one shot when the guy goes down the elevator and explodes in the elevator and it opens up. And there's that one shot where it like pushes in on all of these miners wearing the helmets. And oh, it looks amazing. That, that's like poster shot right there. Mm. All right. So uh, a few years ago, somebody fired off to me a comment in social media where, as we know, everybody in social media is super nice and they <laughs> never say anything mean at all. Yeah. And uh, they fired off a, a comment to me that said, uh, who in 2015, I think that was the year, it's like, who in 2015 still has a side part in their hair? And they were referring to me. Yeah. And I was like, ouch, like that hurts, right? That kind of stings, it's unnecessary. I mean, my God, the, the video's about G.I. Joe or whatever, it's not even about whatever. <laughs> so anyway, yeah. uh, when I started watching Outland a few weeks ago, I was immediately vindicated by the fact that Sean Connery is wearing a traditional side part haircut. Uh, yes. And and I and I, I gotta admit, I was kind of fixated on that, probably unhealthily so. <laughs> but it reminded me that back then, you know, whether it was Indiana Jones or Sean Connery's character of O'Neill or, you know, other characters throughout that time, it was like the hero, yeah. they're rocking, you know, a nice solid haircut. Mm. Most eighties moment. For me, the most eighties nostalgic thing about it is the lad company logo at the beginning of the oh, oh yeah yeah <laughs> it's like scored with john williams and to me that's just redolent of blade runner and a whole host of other things in the early 80s and the company kind of died after the 80s it didn't didn't do very well after that at all i think it, and yet most of its movies are great yeah they are alan ladd had a great instinct for film i mean oh, every yeah. time i see that logo i get thrilled i'm like ooh, i'm in for a good ride mm. Yeah. My answer for the most 80s thing in this movie is hands down the clock. 
Oh. I do not think okay. it's a detractor from the film at all, but it is very much an 80s digital clock with the with the LCD or um sorry, almost like the jumbotron letters, you know, <laughs> yeah. in transit, yeah. all that kind of stuff. That to me is the most 80s part of the film because it reminds me of the time circuits in the DeLorean yes. from Back oh, to the Future except blue instead of red. Yeah. You yes. know. Uh-huh. Yeah. This readout tells you where you're going. This readout tells you where you are. This readout <laughs> is for Sean Connery. You know that. You know, like it's, you know. So. Favorite scene. My favorite scene is actually another example of fine performance from Sean Connery, which is the last scene with Lazarus before the action kicks off, where he's talking about why he is continuing on this uh, suicidal course of his. And the thing that really impresses me about it is that he's vulnerable in parts of it. That's my rotten little part and the rotten machine. <laughs> you know, that that he... I find that I was supposed to be something that I didn't like and I want to find out if they're right. Mm. I thought it was r- really powerful and, and quite important to sort of invest you in the character before the relentless action of, of the last act of the movie. And I thought that he performed it incredibly well and just the way that he... His voice hitches on one part of it and he hesitates on the final line. It's not gung-ho. Mm. As a kid, that would have just completely flown over me. I would have just been saying, break out the lasers and the exploding heads. But now that I'm beyond 40, I can really relate to what he's talking about. Mm. Well, I will go for the uh, lasers <laughs> and the exploding heads then. <laughs> I, yeah, no, I really like the scene with the access doors and uh, Dr. Lazarus uh, helping him out. It was just a really sort of tense moment uh, had real peril as well and and also I just like that they finally use space the space aspect of science fiction in this film because for the most part it was almost like a crime thriller cop movie up until yeah. that point and finally yay he's he's gone out into space in a suit yes <laughs> how about you Michael if I wasn't gonna pick Sean Connery's silent drink at the bar right before the killers arrive. Mm -hmm, I would definitely pick the scene where he finally talks to his wife through the transmission Mm -hmm. technology. And she says something to the effect of how bad is it? And he's like, no, everything's fine. And she's like, when you say that, I know everything is not fine. She, She says something to that effect. And I just remember loving that moment because he's not going to give his wife any reason to worry beyond what she already kind of knows. Mm. You know, she she knows her husband well enough to know that things are not good, but he's not the kind of guy that's gonna complain about the troubles that he's about to face. One day when I grow up, I hope to be O'Neill in that respect, because, you know, sometimes I do like to just vent, and he's not a, <laughs> he doesn't vent. You know, he's just this guy that just gets on with it. Mm-hmm. Most cliche sci-fi moment. I was going to say uh, misrepresentation of gravity. <laughs> it's just an all sci-fi. Gravity has its own rules in every movie. Yeah, that's true. I, I was going to go for explosive decompression, and that's just lodged in my brain as being a sci-fi cliche because of our regular guest and uh, stalwart listener, Surge, from Cold Crash Pictures who had it in his top four most annoying scientific inaccuracies <laughs> in cinema video essay, which I really like. But yeah, it happens all the time, not just here. I mean, 
Total Recall is another great eye-bulging example and Event Horizon. Ah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I did, yeah. I did look it up because I was curious what actually happens to an exposed human body in space. And you do swell, just not to explosion level <laughs> swelling. No. One interesting thing that also happens is any exposed liquid boils. So all the liquid mm. on your tongue and your eyes starts boiling. Ow. Best special effect. I mean, mine's going to count for my pick for the funniest moment as well, but the exploding heads were kind of... <laughs> I mean, I liked the actual explosion when it exploded in the helmet and you just saw the blood. That was kind of... That was a great effect. But the zoom in <laughs> on the faces and the kind of distortion of their face was just hilarious. And the bulging <laughs> eyes. Oh, so funny. Yeah. <laughs> I was impressed with the space walking in general, although there was that one moment when he's fighting the last guy where it's like he gets kicked off a catwalk and he falls and hangs, and I'm going, it's space. Mm -hmm. So why is gravity suddenly a problem on this catwalk? But I did like the spacewalk effects. I thought for 1981, I thought they were really solid. I thought they were relatively well composited, uh, or in this case, the uh, the other technology they were using. Mm. And I, I was actually worried when I realized he was putting on a spacesuit to go out of the space station. Because before, what we'd seen is we'd seen spacesuits for guys on mining uh, surfaces. Sure. They weren't actually in star fields. They weren't, they weren't having to be composited. They were literally just on a set that looked like an asteroid. Mm. Well, the moment I realized, oh gosh, they're sending Sean Connery's character out into composite land in a movie, you know, in the early 80s. I'm going, oh, no. And I braced myself, and I was thankfully wrong mm. about what I thought I was about to see. I, I was very impressed with those effects. So, yeah. 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 Ambitious. Favorite sound effect. There was a sound that I'm vaguely remembering it when... He's activating the, I don't want to call it the video conference because she's not on the screen, but it's his computer station. There's a, I remember there was a specific sound when he was activating that thing with his card. He put the card in and it would, it made some sort of noise. And I remember thinking, I've never heard that noise in a sci-fi movie before. Yeah. I, I loved all those sort of analog sounds of that machine as well. Mm -hmm. Like it wasn't too yeah. beep boopy. Like it sounded more yes. machinery mechanical. Exactly. Yes, mm. exactly. Yeah. The sound that I picked out, which harks back to the whole fact that this is kind of, this is like a Western in space, is that one of the, the bullet ricochet sounds. It sounds so yeah. Western. It's got the real twang to yeah. it. It's so good. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's, that was what I was going to oh, pick really? as well. But <laughs> yeah, even in a space movie, they have ricochets. Um, and I'm sure guns don't, I mean, being English, I don't, I've never even seen a gun, so... I would have no idea, but uh, surely bullets don't ricochet as frequently as they do in action movies. <laughs> no, <laughs> they don't. Uh, they don't. Uh, I think back then they were still leaning on a stock library of yeah. gunshot sounds. Yeah. You know, you can hear the same grenade explosion sound for like 35 years in movies before somebody just went along and re-recorded a few new ones. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know... <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's the same one. Most funniest <laughs> moment. I guess my funniest scene is going to be anything with Francis in it. Mm -hmm. My favorite moment of comedy, purely, is when she reveals in her own mind 
that she's not even a doctor. Like she <laughs> yeah. doesn't even see herself yeah. Yeah. as a doctor. And you know, he's kind of like, what? You know, like so. Yeah, I'm yeah. the same. All, all of the scenes with uh, Frances Sternhug, and, and particularly when she comes out with nice little homey phrases like, almost everybody here doesn't have both oars in the water as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> this is great little yeah. turns of phrase that she comes out with. She's great. Okay. And that's our Mooblies. Yes. Hello, this is Robert Picardo. And you're listening to Movie Oubliette. Hey, hey, welcome to the final Space Western showdown. Should Peter Himes' Outland be jettisoned off to safety in a space shuttle adored by all? Or should it be blown out without a pressure suit into deeper space, its liquefied <laughs> remains poured into the Oubliette lost forever? <laughs> Michael, you did choose this film. What were your, what's your final thoughts on this film? My final thought on Outland is that it is in my top three Sean Connery movies of all Ooh, time. Oh, wow. Yeah. I'm, I'm very happy that I bought it on Blu-ray. I'm very happy that I watched it coincidentally a few weeks before you guys reached out to have me on the show and that it was, you know, on the list to choose from. It was a lost gem for me of Sean Connery. I'm not somebody that thinks his top three to five movies are all Bond. Mm-hmm. Uh, as a matter of fact, none of his Bond films rate for me. My my number one Sean Connery film is The Name of the Rose, oh. where he plays the monk, you know, trying to solve the murder. And then this one and Untouchables. Right. Those are my favorite Sean Connery movies. I, I really feel like he came into his own in all of those as a performer. And even though Outland is sort of a lost movie to a lot of people, it's it's a lost ball in tall grass. You know, it's it's out there if you want to go look for it, and you should, because it's a solid performance from Sean Connery. It's a great story. It's I love stories that are very focused. The problem is is almost one-to-one, and the characters are having to really talk it out and think it out and deal with some of their interpersonal issues at the same time. Like, I don't mean inner demons. I mean, like, I have a problem with you. You have a problem with me. Mm-hmm. We need to work this out because otherwise we're going to die. And and Outland really has that. It really has all of that going on. Mm. Uh, Dan? I've never seen this movie before. This is definitely not your classic sci-fi. It isn't your laser swords mm-hmm. and whatever flying around and aliens. I, I love films that sort of take other genres and just put it in space. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't need to have all the flashy explosions. It can be just a criminal investigation on a mining colony on Jupiter's moon. That's interesting. And and I agree, Michael, it's focused. It doesn't try to do too many things at once. Mm-hmm. And what it does, it does really well. And it does it draws you into the character mm-hmm. of O'Neill and Dr. Lazarus and the conspiracy with the manager of the mine. Yeah, it's a great payoff. It's a great, he gets to be with his family. He gets to go to Earth. It's happy without being too saturn as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
Well, I'm going to agree with you. I mean, I was always ambivalent about this movie when I was a kid because there just weren't enough lasers. I mean, to give you an idea of how intolerant I was as a kid, I used to get annoyed at Star Trek because they had to think about whether to fire or not. It's like, just spray laser death like the stormtroopers. What are you doing? You're loading torpedoes. It's taking too long. Yeah. So, I mean, as a, as a kid, this I was always ambivalent about this movie, but watching it again as an adult, I really enjoyed enjoyed the strength of the drama. Oddly enough, the film was criticised for being too one-dimensional, but I think you really need to um, look mm. at Connery's performance and Francis Sternhagen's performance to see that this, as well as being a really good thriller with some surprisingly good effects and some great uh, early 80s production design, it does have a very strong story with really interesting and, and carefully shaded and well-performed characters. Yeah. And I think if you haven't seen it and you love Alien and you love sci-fi of the era, I think you'll get a real kick out of discovering this movie mm. if you haven't seen it before. Yeah, I mean, you're right about the production design. Impeccable mm. set design, costumes, lighting is incredible as well. It looks real. Like, it doesn't look mm. tacky at any moment. Yeah. Yeah, it doesn't seem to have pandered to any 80s science fiction fad or even an 80s cinema fad of any kind. Like, it seems like it just wanted to be something authentic and credible, mm. you know? Totally agreed. So I think we're opening that shuttle bay door and letting Outland go. You want to go get drunk? <laughs> Nice. So, Michael, it's been great having you here talking to us about Outland. I'm sure our listeners have enjoyed hearing your thoughts on this movie. Where can they follow you and hear more of your thoughts on other topics? Uh, our main portal for retroblasting is YouTube. So if you go to youtube.com backslash retroblasting, you can see all of our videos where we talk about all kinds of retro pop culture topics. We are also on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter as twitter.com, instagram.com backslash retroblasting. It's all one word, and it's easy to find us. So I hope you guys who are interested out there in cyberspace will come check us out. Amazing. Yes, I, I think everybody should because there's everything from deep dives into cartoon series that you can barely remember from your childhood with exhaustive looks into the, the story behind their making, which is, yeah, you can go down a rabbit hole with some of this stuff. And then sometimes it's it's things like restorations of beloved childhood toys. And and you can watch me break things by accident while trying to fix them, <laughs> which is also funny. You know? It is, yeah. But I find it oddly relaxing watching you sort of painstakingly try to recreate something. Yes, although I feel like the guy who really takes the cake for uh, toy restoration relaxation is Toy Poloi. Uh, yeah. That guy is like the Bob Ross of toy restoration <laughs> wow. videos online. Dave is a genius. Dave is a genius, and he does great work. Dude, look at that. I just plugged somebody other than myself. Like, whatever. That's fine. Generous to a fault. Yeah. That's right. Well, I guess we should really plug us, Conrad. Uh, you yeah. Listeners out there, you can find us on all social media platforms, Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook as MovieOubliette. Yes, and you can email us at movie.oubliette at gmail.com. We love hearing from you. And we do have a Patreon account. So if you want to give yes. us some money, just a little bit, <laughs> uh, $1 a month gets access to extended segments. And for $5, you get access to our monthly 
monthly minisode. Mm, where we review a new film, or a newer film anyway. <laughs> yes, yes. Well, I mean, not, not a lot of films came out last year. <laughs> no. <laughs> That's very true. Uh, so not much to review. But, listeners, you can rate or review us on your favourite podcast platform. Um, really cheers us up to see some feedback. Yes. Yes, it really does. Uh, Conrad, what are we doing next time? Well, we will still be in the realm of science fiction, but this time in the 2010s, we'll be watching a surreal science fiction time travel psychological thriller called... Coherence. <laughs> it's a bit of a tongue twister. <laughs> It is, yes. <laughs> I mean, not the title, <laughs> your description. Well, no. <laughs> no. Yes, so it's directed by James Ward Burkett, starring Emily Baldoni, Maori Sterling, and Nicholas Brendan. I have seen this movie before, so I, I'm looking forward to this. Yeah, okay. So that should be exciting. Mm. And we will be joined by a special guest. Indeed. So thanks to Michael for joining us. This has been a lot of fun. Thank you for the invitation. I'm glad I was finally able to get on the show. Yeah, it's been great. Thanks everybody for listening to this episode of Movie Oubliette. Some of us will see you on the next one. <laughs> <laughs> Until next time, listeners. Bye for now. Goodbye. We review the films others tend to forget. I'm unpleasant, I'm not stupid. <laughs>